I was reading an article this week in the Wall Street Journal, which suggested that the coronavirus crisis, the pandemic, and the economic uh, catastrophe that is happening really around the world as a result, that these circumstances may in fact be leading us to a third great awakening here in America. Uh, In fact, the article uh, made this case. It said, sometimes the most important ingredient for spiritual renewal is a cataclysmic event. It's really true, isn't it? Sometimes in order for God to get our attention, he has to upset our comforts. He has to break our pride. And sometimes God lifts us up by, first of all, taking us low. We've all experienced that in our own personal walk with him. And could it be, the Wall Street Journal asks, that God is going to do a great spiritual work out of all this brokenness? Let me read to you a brief excerpt from the article. Uh, The writer says, the experience of the coronavirus is new and disorienting. Life had been deceptively easy until now. Our ancestors' lives, by contrast, were guaranteed to be short and painful. The lucky ones survived birth. The luckier ones made it past childhood. Only in the past 200 years has humanity truly taken off. We now float through an anomalous world of air conditioning, acetaminophen, and pocket-sized computers containing nearly the sum of human knowledge. We reduced nature to the shackled form of a conquered monster, and we took control of our fate. And God, the article says, became irrelevant. Who will save us now that the monster has broken free? The article closes with this question, will Americans shaken by the reality of a risky universe rediscover the God who proclaimed himself sovereign over every catastrophe? Isn't that a great question? Will Americans suddenly rediscover this God out of our brokenness? And the fact of the matter is the evidence seems to indicate that Americans may in fact be rediscovering the God of the Bible. Listen to these statistics. 44% of people recently polled say that this pandemic is a wake-up call from God. Those same 44% believing that this is a sign of the coming judgment of God. Nearly half of all Americans say God is trying to get our attention. In fact, 30% of the people polled say that they believe that these events of the pandemic and the catastrophe happening around the world economically, that these are signs that we're living in the last days. And this poll was taken among Americans of all stripes, not just Christians, not just Protestants or Catholics or evangelicals, of all stripes, atheists and agnostics, churchgoers and non-churchgoers. And they believe in sweeping numbers that God is trying to get our attention. 
And the fact is that Americans are turning to the Bible. In this season of crisis, Americans are turning to the Bible to find answers, to find hope, to understand what's going on. 40% of Christians say that since the pandemic began to break out here in America, they are reading their Bibles more than ever before. I wonder if that's true of you. Are you reading your Bible more than you used to? Has the stay-at-home order given you more time and you've decided that the value of reading Scripture has been elevated in your life? 40%, 44% say that they are reading their Bible more than ever before. And fully one in five, 22% of non-Christians, these are unbelievers, say that they are reading their Bible for the very first time. Imagine that. This is great news for the cause of the gospel. This is great news for the purposes of evangelism. Because fully of non-believers, one in five that you bump into, that you lock eyes with, are now opening a Bible and they've never done it before. But they're looking for answers. And this is good news because the Bible points every person who reads it to Jesus. The Bible always is shouting the message of Jesus. And so if more Christians are reading their Bible and if more non-believers are reading their Bible, then the message of Jesus is being proclaimed more and more than ever before. You see, we must understand that Jesus is the theme. He is the subject. He is the message of the Bible. Wherever you read your Bible, wherever you open its pages, you are reading of Jesus. Jesus is the summit of every mountain peak in Holy Scripture. Each mountain that you ascend, Christ will be found at the top of it. And Jesus is the living water flowing through every valley in the Scriptures. He is the climax of everything. All biblical revelation, the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And I take great joy that in our collective, national, and even global brokenness, more and more people are turning to the Bible. From the Gospels in the New Testament and the Acts uh, of the Apostles recorded in the New Testament, all of the epistles, the letters of the New Testament in the Apocalypse of Revelation, the entire book, all 27 books of the New Testament point backward to Jesus. And in the Old Testament, all of the histories of the nation of Israel, all of the poetry of the Psalms and the Proverbs and others, all of the prophecies of the major prophets and the minor prophets, all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And so no matter where you read in the scriptures, it's all pointing to Jesus. And how appropriate, more than that, how divinely orchestrated is it that in this time of a resurgence, this universal rise in people reading the Bible where they will learn about Jesus, they are doing so in these days where we celebrate his passion. These days of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and Ascension Day 
and Good Friday. These are the days, these days which proclaim the passion of Jesus. These are the days in which more people than ever are turning to their Bibles. And I count that a great opportunity for the gospel and a great privilege for us to be a part of. And so beginning today, we're going we're gonna to get into that flow as a church family. And beginning today for the next four Sundays, every Sunday in April, we are going to focus our collective attention on the central figure of all revealed truth, Jesus Christ, and specifically his passion for us. Today, being Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about Jesus, the suffering servant. Today, we will consider the crucifixion of Jesus. Next Sunday will be Easter Sunday. I hope you will invite everybody that you know to tune in to Brookstone at Home next Sunday because we are going to be considering the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, no longer the suffering servant, but Jesus, our risen Lord. The Sunday following Easter, on April the 29th, we're going to consider Jesus the ascended king. Have you ever given much thought to the ascension of Jesus? The significance of his rising back to the Father? We'll talk about it on April the 19th. And then finally, on April the 26th, we will consider Jesus and the indwelling spirit. We'll talk about his promise at Pentecost. And so we're going to step into this into this national and global focus and, f- and flow of considering what the Bible says about Jesus in these days. You have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to begin in verse number 33. Jesus has, on the night previous, been arrested. He has been held overnight, tried by the Sanhedrin, delivered to Pilate, turned over to the Roman soldiers, scourged at Pilate's Hall at the Praetorium, now led out to be crucified. Matthew 27 and verse number 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted of it, he would not drink it. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Verse 36, And sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head this accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. We'll stop reading there. You know, this passage, these few verses about the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, which, by the way, the account extends far beyond the few verses that we read. 
But just these few verses give us explicit detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. I want you to jot down a couple of things that this passage tells us about his crucifixion. First of all, it makes clear the place. This passage tells us the place where Jesus was crucified. Verse 33 is very plain. And when they were come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, otherwise known as Calvary, to Mount Calvary. And if you look at verse number 39, it gives a bit of information of where this Calvary or Golgotha was located. Verse 39 says, and they that passed by. So we have some insight about the place where Jesus was crucified. Maybe you grew up in church singing that beautiful old hymn, that cherished uh, Christian anthem, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And yet you know that the cross was not on a hill far away, don't you? It wasn't in a beautiful uh, meadow somewhere with uh, lilies blooming off by itself. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The place where Jesus was crucified was a place used for execution. This is the reason it had gathered the name. It had, had, had come to be known as Golgotha or the place of a skull. This was a place of death. And we also know, according to verse number 39, that it was a place not on a hill far away, but by a road near to town because people were passing by. They were walking past the cross. So Jesus was crucified in a public place near to the city of Jerusalem. Many of you have been to Jerusalem with me or with others and you've visited uh, the place called the Garden Tomb, the place of uh, uh, otherwise known as Gordon's Calvary. We believe that Jesus was crucified. Many people believe that he was crucified at a place inside the old city today uh, called uh, the, uh, the Church uh, of, of Crucifixion. And, and either of these places would have been right at uh, the city of Jerusalem, a very busy place. Secondly, we know that Jesus was humiliated in his crucifixion. There was great humiliation in his crucifixion. In fact, as we were just talking, this was not a lonely place where not many people would see. It was right by the road near to the city. And the Bible goes on to tell us in verse number 35 that they crucified him there taking his garments. And so Jesus uh, is exposed. He's hanging naked on the cross. He is, verse number 36 says, being stared at, being watched as people are sitting there casting their eyes on him. There's an accusation, verse 37 tells us, above his head. This is Jesus who claimed to be the king of the Jews. It speaks to his rejection. And verse number 40 says that they, uh, verse 39, they wagged their heads. In verse 40, they cast insults at him. All of this uh, contributing to his humiliation. And so near the city, uh, next to a busy road, Jesus hangs totally exposed with his claim to deity being openly mocked as people are passing by. The place and the humiliation. And then the third thing that this passage tells us about the crucifixion of Jesus is his suffering. That his suffering, even beyond the humiliation, was great. 
Verse number 34 says they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink of it. Now this was a tiny act of mercy offered by the Romans. A a bit of an anesthetic was offered to Jesus, a bit of an intoxicating drink to dull the pain. He would not take that, that he might endure the full suffering for our sins. Verse number 35 says they crucified him. And you know what that means. Impaled upon the cross, nailed uh, to that timber uh, that stood there along the road just outside of Jerusalem. Now the fact of the matter is, never did a man suffer like Jesus did. Never was a man so humiliated as was Jesus on that day as he gave his life for our sins. But I want you to notice what verse 35 says. And so often we would read right past this and miss it. But notice it says, They crucified him there. They parted his garments, casting lots, so that it might be fulfilled. Now, that statement is often made of things that Jesus would do. He would do this or go there or say the other in order to fulfill what the prophets had said. They crucified him, parting his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. The prophet had said, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Well, what prophet said that? Well, in this case, it was the prophet, psalmist, King David. Uh, This is a direct quote from Psalm 22. In fact, why don't you leave Matthew 27. We're going to make our way to Isaiah 53. But I want you to go to Psalms first. And uh, turn just quickly to Psalm 22. Listen to what Psalm 22 says. As David writes, a thousand years before Jesus came, David writes in Psalm 22 and verse 16. Prophetically, he says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Verse number 17, I can tell or see all of my bones. They, these that have encompassed me, they look at me and stare at me. The Bible says in Matthew 27, they sat down, they watched him there as he was nailed to the tree. Verse 18, They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. A thousand years before Jesus came and was crucified for us, the prophet, psalmist, David, proclaimed what in fact would happen to Jesus. But the truth is, when the Bible says in Matthew 27 that the prophets foretold the crucifixion of Jesus, if you wonder which prophet, you almost could just pick one. Because the prophets of the Old Testament were all pointing us forward to Christ and his suffering. And I've chosen today, because it's Palm Sunday and we're thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus, I have chosen to consider with you the prophet Isaiah. So would you meet me there? You've already got that place marked in your Bible. Isaiah chapter number 53. And I want you to follow along as I read this Really familiar passage of scripture beginning in verse number one, Isaiah 53 and verse number one. Many of you know that Isaiah of the 16 or so Hebrew prophets recorded in the Old Testament, Isaiah was one of the earliest around 700 years before Christ, Isaiah's ministry took place. 
and listen to his prophecy. And let's think about it. Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Isaiah asks, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to look at verse number 1, Isaiah 53 and verse number 1. So familiar is this question which begins this declaration of the uh, suffering servant that Isaiah writes about. He begins with this question, who hath believed our report? It's almost as if Isaiah uh, gathers the collective voice of every one of the Hebrew prophets, all of the prophets, the ones that had come before him and all of the prophets that would come along after him. It's as if he gathers all of their voices and he shouts out uh, through eternity, who will believe our report? Who will listen to what we are proclaiming? The word report means who will believe our message? This is what the prophets did. They brought a message. They proclaimed truth. They were bringing a testimony. And the Hebrew word for report is a word which implies good news. It's a gospel kind of a word. Isaiah collectively gathers all of the voices of the prophets and says, who will believe the good testimony, the good news that we're bringing? And then he asks a second question in verse number one. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The word revealed means that this, this arm of the Lord is not hidden. This is not a secret thing. It has been uncovered. It is plain to see. These words are reminiscent of the words of Jesus. When he would sometimes say, he who hath an ear to hear, let him hear. And so who will listen, this is the question of Isaiah, to whom has the uh, arm of the Lord uh, been revealed? Now this plain news, this clear message, this revealed truth that Isaiah is joining all of the prophets in proclaiming re uh, relates to, verse 1, the arm of the Lord. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I love this phrase, the arm of the Lord. 
you know, maybe you've seen some guys sometimes, been a long time since I would have done this. Maybe many, many years ago as I was a teenager, I might have done it. You know, the guys showing their, showing their guns or, or talking about strength or flexing their, their muscles. And, and what they're doing by saying that is I have strength. I have power. If you want to know a man's strength, look at his arm. And so when the Bible talks about in verse number one and in other passages, the arm of the Lord, it means just that. It means the strength of the Lord or the mighty power of God. Isaiah gathers the voice of all the prophets and says, who will believe this? Who will open their eyes to clearly see the mighty strength of almighty God? And who is it that Isaiah is talking about? He's talking about God's Messiah, that God will show his might, that God will reveal his strength through his Messiah, whom Isaiah reveals will be a suffering servant. But through this suffering one, Isaiah says, the strength of God to redeem, the strength of God to redeem the nation of Israel, and ultimately the strength of God to redeem even the Gentile nations will be revealed through this suffering servant. Now another thing that you'll notice in Isaiah 53 is that some 16 times, I circled them in my Bible, some 16 times in just the first six verses, the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, the suffering servant, is personified by the, the uh, pronouns he or him. I won't take time to read the whole text again, but maybe you noticed it when we were reading it, or you could go back and read it later. Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected. Uh, verse number 4, surely he, he hath borne our griefs. Over and over again, 16 times, Isaiah says, the arm of the Lord... The strength of God to redeem us will be revealed in a suffering man. The Messiah, the Redeemer, will be a suffering servant. He will be a man. And any honest reading of Isaiah will make it plain that the man of whom Jesus is speaking, or of whom Isaiah is speaking, is in fact Jesus. So what does Isaiah tell us about Jesus? And this is really the point. Isaiah asked the questions, who, who will believe our report? Who's going to open their eyes to this revealed strength of God in this suffering Messiah who will come? What is it that he tells us about Jesus? Well, write it down. Number one, uh, he tells us about the Messiah as a man. Uh, he doesn't just say that he will be a man, but in this passage, he clearly describes what this man will be like. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the message of Isaiah, uh, really in all of the, the book of Isaiah, is the message of God's redemption through a Messiah. That's, that's what Isaiah is talking about. Uh, he's looking forward to the fact that God will send a Messiah to redeem uh, fallen man, not just fallen Israel, not just the nation, but that he will redeem even the Gentile nations, all of us, by his mighty arm, his strong power, the Messiah, this suffering servant, this man. So what does he say that this man would be like? 
Well, he tells us that, verse number two, he says that this man will grow up before him. That is, grow up in the sight of God. God is watching that caring eye. He will grow up before him as a tender plant, verse two says, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now notice, he says that this Messiah, this suffering servant, who will reveal the mighty strength of God to redeem us, will will come into the world, verse 2 says, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Now, what is he talking about? Well, the image that Isaiah has in mind is a, a, a tree that has been cut down and nothing left but a stump, uh, a shoot, that's what it means, a tender plant, a, a shoot uh, uh, coming up from the, the base of the trunk or the root being all that's left, that shoot coming up out of that, out of that root or a barren piece of ground and there's, there's, it's parched and barren and there's no fruit and suddenly a, a little branch or a little shoot begins to rise up out of it. He says that's the way the Messiah would come. Now what does that mean? Well, it's a reference to the fallen nation of Israel. Do you understand that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, the house of David, the nation of Israel at that time, had long since fallen. When Jesus arrived on the scene, Israel had fallen as a nation some six centuries previous to that. They had been swept over and swallowed up by powerful pagan nations. And God's glorious people during the days of the arrival of Jesus Christ, God's glorious people were mere subjects in the kingdom of another. Their nation was barren and parched like a mighty tree that had been cut down. Israel had fallen. And it was out of that brokenness, that barrenness, like a, like a tender plant, like a shoot coming up out of that barren ground. That is how Jesus came. He just came out of that brokenness almost completely unnoticed by anyone except the careful watching eye of his father. For he shall grow up before him, unnoticed by most, a tender plant, a a root out of dry ground. He goes on to say in verse number two that this mighty arm of God, this Messiah who would come to redeem us, would have no form nor comeliness or beauty that we should desire him. This is when you looked at Jesus as a man. There was was nothing grand and inviting about his appearance. There was no royal robe. There there was no regal court. There, There were no trumpeters. There was nothing about him that would cause you to say, there is the mighty arm of God, the Messiah coming to redeem us. You wouldn't say that because he was growing up as a, as a, a Jewish boy in the home of a Jewish carpenter. He was growing up like every other Jewish boy. And so there was no form, no comeliness, no beauty, verse 2 says, that we should desire him. No titles, no crown, no halo, 
Nothing that would cause us to be drawn to him. There was no arrogant claims. There was no proclamation. He was just, in every sense of the word, an ordinary looking boy and then young man. He was not self-promoting. He wasn't obnoxious. He wasn't conceited. He was born in obscurity and he lived a life of obscurity. In fact, Isaiah had alluded to this even earlier in his prophecy. Let me just turn back a couple of pages to Isaiah 42. He had alluded to this ordinary nature of the Messiah. Again, he calls him a servant in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he shall bring judgment unto the Gentiles. Listen to verse 2. He shall not cry, cry aloud, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break and a smoking flax, a wick of a candle, he shall not quench. He's being described in Isaiah 42 as this gentle, kind, ordinary person. When the Bible describes God's mighty arm, the the strength of God revealed as the Messiah, he says he will be a man, not just a man, a, a simple, ordinary man. And it's this commonness of Jesus, this ordinariness of Jesus, which made him so easy to dismiss. In fact, isn't that what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter number 53? Verse number 3, he is despised and rejected of men. Verse 3 says, we hid our faces from him. It's like we just looked away. We saw nothing to, to be drawn to. He was an ordinary looking man. Isaiah says that the strength of God, the mighty arm of God, would be this kind of man. But make no mistake about it. Though he looked very ordinary, his purpose was extraordinary. And he goes on in Isaiah 53 to tell us about the Messiah in his mission. Jot that down somewhere. So you've got the Messiah as a man and then the Messiah in his mission. What it is that Jesus came to do. I love how that verse number four, after describing in verses two and three his ordinariness, then he says in verse number four, but surely. It's almost as if don't be, don't be misled by the ordinariness of him. The common appearance of Jesus. Because surely this one has come with a certain mission. Verse uh, number three, or verse four rather. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was punished. The chastisement of our peace, the punishment to secure our peace was upon him. Verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Loved ones, this is the mission of the Messiah. And remember, what Isaiah says in verse number one of his, of his prophecy of chapter 53 is, who's gonna believe this report? Who will look at this clearly revealed truth of God's Messiah, the mighty strength of God to redeem us? This man so seemingly ordinary will surely be the one upon whom 
God will take all of the sins of the world and he will place those upon this one. And God will take all of the iniquity of every one of us and he, the Messiah, the Son of God, will be bruised for our iniquities. And God will take our rebellion and he will place it upon Jesus and Jesus will be crushed for our rebellion. And God will take our greed and our lust and our dishonesty and our rejection of him and he will put all of that upon Jesus and so that we might be redeemed and find peace with God, he will punish Jesus in our place. While Jesus the Messiah may have looked ordinary, his mission was anything but ordinary because he was the mighty arm, the strength of God to redeem all who would come to him. Isaiah says, who who will believe this? Who, Who will accept this revelation of the strength of God for redemption? Will you? Have you? The Messiah came as a man, Jesus, very ordinary, but with an extraordinary purpose. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was afflicted by God, bore our iniquities, was crushed for our transgressions. A moment ago, we read in Matthew 27 how that, that bruising and that crushing and that chastisement and that punishment occurred as Jesus was taken to the cross and in humiliation, suffering, suffering death in our place, there outside of Jerusalem. The Messiah as a man with an amazing mission. And then finally, this passage in Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah in his mercy. The Messiah in his mercy. Verse number five at the end of the verse says, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And I love this statement. And by his stripes or with his stripes. We are healed. Verse number five implies something, doesn't it? It's not even implicit so much. It's explicit that we need to be healed. Because according to verses number four and five, we have griefs and we have sorrows and we have uh, transgressions and we have iniquities and and we uh, have had all of these acts of rebellion and and death and lostness in our lives. And we need healing. We need to be redeemed. And so God sent Jesus, the Messiah, who might bear those sins and bear those rebellions and bear that rejection for us so that by his, verse verse 5 says, by his stripes we are healed. And that promise, that offer of healing is what the Messiah came to bring to us. And Isaiah says, will you believe this? Will you you believe that he has come into your world to bring healing? You know, it was just this week in the port of Los Angeles that the U.S. naval ship uh, Mercy uh, sailed into port. This giant, uh, state-of-the-art naval hospital sailing into the stricken city of Los Angeles where coronavirus uh, is raging almost as as bad as in New York in this hot spot of Los Angeles. 
the ship Mercy sailed in. And when it sailed in, it brought with it the hope of help and healing is here. I want you to know that Jesus has sailed into this, into this world. Jesus, the Messiah, the strong arm of God, has come into this world. And when you read about his life in the Gospels, he may look ordinary, but he is far from it. He is God in the flesh who came to bear our sins. And so the disease of sin, the sickness of our iniquity, and the end of our disease, death, not just physical death, but eternal separation from God forever in hell. That sin and that consequence of our sin is healed. How does the Bible say it in verse 5? By his stripes. By that thorny crown that he wore on the day he was crucified. By those lashes upon his back. By those nails in his feet and in his hands, by that blood that he shed for us, our disease of sin is healed. And this is what we remember when we celebrate communion. It's what the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the fruit of the vine is all about. It is our acknowledgement, our proclamation that I could never be healed absent the broken body of the Messiah. Without the shed blood of Jesus, I could not be healed from my sickness of sin. And we partake, we participate, we receive the bread and the juice to say, Lord, we believe and we proclaim and we trust that our hope is in the Messiah, God's mighty arm, the suffering servant, Jesus.